Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly quite infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a live and delightful audience, and on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. In this episode, we have our first ever off-site way, way, way off-site Dead Lady Show contribution all the way from Wellington, New Zealand. You may have heard us mention that this was happening in November, and we are super excited to be able to share some of the talks from it, learn about New Zealand and its cultures, both Maori and Pakia. That's the te reiro Maori, word for non-indigenous New Zealanders. And please forgive my pronunciation, I'm still learning this stuff. Uh, we have two wahine, or women, being presented, but first... Here's a little clip of how the show started in Wellington. Marvelous! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome along to the Dead Lady Show. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. Uh, Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Darbyshire joins me here in Chile, Berlin, to uh, explain um, New Zealand. How did that happen? And help me introduce this episode's presenters. Katie, how did this happen? Yeah, I got a message out of the blue which has also vanished into the ether i can't find it anymore from uh claire maybe who is one of the producers of lit crawl festival saying oh we have heard your podcast and we would love to do the same thing in new zealand would that be all right with you and we said oh my god it would be more than all right with us um very very exciting and basically we helped them out we have some guidelines for our presenters which we shared with them and we gave them a couple of tips and let them do their own thing pretty much yeah so can anyone do a dead lady show i guess you know there's no nothing holding you back apart from your own selves yeah i mean we'd we'd love it it's exciting um we're very happy to help if you want to do a live show of your own somewhere in the world obviously we can't come sadly we couldn't make it to new zealand but um yeah we're happy to share our wealth of experience and uh and uh you know you can use our logo and that kind of thing yeah we do have rules you want me to tell you the rules sure sure tell us the rules <laughs> we have so the rule is you have to talk about women who identified as women during their lifetimes they have to be dead and no fascists very good rules. And the other rule is that you are not allowed to make a podcast because uh, <laughs> because I said so. Yes. Um, but you are allowed to submit recordings to yes. us. So we would love it. Um, anyways, and that's kind of what happened here. We got these great recordings uh, from Wellington. And um, we're going to go now to our New Zealand presenters and their New Zealand dead ladies. First up, we have Jessie Bray Sharpen. She calls herself a renegade historian and says her main priority in life is to shout from the rooftops all of the women's history that has been left out of the mainstream narrative since basically forever. Jessie, you are our kind of gal. <laughs> We're going to hear Jessie present the life of Constance Barnacote, an influential journalist, multilingual interpreter, and intrepid mountaineer. Here she is from the stage of the venue San Fran during Lit Crawl Wellington in November. This is the dead lady that I... Am I standing right in front of the information? Yeah. Cool. Well, um, this is like the, probably the most basic slideshow I've ever made in my life, so I don't think that's going to matter very much. Um, the only words that are going to appear are the ones that are on screen right now. 
the date numbers are very small, so I'll say them, 1872 to 1922. And I'm going to talk to you about a woman called Constance Alice Barnacote. This is her when she was just a cute little gal. And uh, I'm actually going to start, I only just decided this about 30 seconds ago, but I'm going to start by reading her obituary to you because it's fucking crazy. <laughs> Madame Julian Grand. It's oh, a bit weird, isn't it? That's not her name. Madame Julian Grand, Geneva, 18th September. The death is announced of Madame Julian Grand, wife of the literateur and daughter of the Honourable J.W. Barnacote, MLC, New Zealand, legislator. Sir James Allen and Sir Francis Bell attended the funeral. Oh, cool. Um, so... Keep that in mind while I tell you about this awesome dead lady. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Constance Barnacote was a Nelson woman born and bred like myself. And you probably recognise the Barnacote name. Yes, her dad was famous and stuff's named after him. Basically, if you hear the word Barnacote, it's almost always not named after her. It's named after her dad. No big deal. Um, so... Constance Barnacote was the youngest child in her family and her biographical information often will say something about how she had a nice education, blah, blah, blah. Um, things start to get really exciting when she's about this age in the photograph. She's a young woman. She's gone to Nelson College for Girls, which was recently started in the 1880s by another great dead lady, Kate Edgar, who was only 26 when she became the first principal there. And Constance went to girls' college, and then uh, when she had finished there, she went down to Christchurch and got her BA down there. She moved up to Wellington, and uh, she worked for Frances Bell, the, the same one that was in her obituary instead of her. And, um, and she worked as his assistant, and then she also started working as a journalist, and she trained as a shorthand journalist, and it was, uh, it's thought that she was probably the first official female shorthand reporter in New Zealand. Uh, but in 1897, she decided to head to London instead and continue her education there at uh, a school with a super long name that says stuff like shorthand and reporting and journalism all combined. Um, so she was an excellent writer, but she also uh, caught up with a new hobby at the turn of the century. And that was that she, she decided to come back to New Zealand Sadly, under um, circumstances that her mother wasn't well. But she spent 19 some of 1902 and 1903 back here. And while she was here, she heard that two women were planning to be the first woman in New Zealand, the first Pākehā woman that we know about, to cross the Copland Pass between Mount Cook and the West Coast. And she was like, I want to do that too. So she and these two other women were the first women to cross that pass. And the really cool thing about Constance at this point is that she actually, you can find on papers past uh, her reporting on that walk that she did, but she talks about, uh, at that time, women who did walks or, or even low-level mountaineering, they still wore crazy dresses. Like, they still wanted to look like ladies, but they would just make them really, like, heavy material and, oh, it's just kind of nuts. But... Constance referred to that clothing as being, uh, she said they were tempestuous petticoats. That's my favourite quote of hers, tempestuous petticoats. And she said that uh, she she kitted herself out like a boy, she said. And she ordered um, 
shoes and trousers and jog- and um, putties and uh, and a jumper and a hat and everything. And she was like, I'm not wearing a fucking dress <laughs> when I become one of the first three women to cross the Copland Pass. So this was sort of her first taste of that mountaineering experience. And she went back to England and counted her time uh, in England with constant trips to Europe to do more mountaineering. And she scandalised people because she would often go on trips where she only had male guides and no female companions. Uh, And at the time, she was a young woman and it was very common for women around this time to marry, but it wasn't until Constance was in her late 30s that she married. And I read a biography of her that described her husband as being very handsome. And I'm like, well, he, he better have been because she, <laughs> she clearly waited. I don't think she would have married if she hadn't met him because she, was, she had this incredible life. She was so busy being a reporter and a mountaineer. She didn't have any time to stop and try and woo anyone or let them woo her. But the man that she did end up marrying, Julian Grand, was himself a mountaineer and a reporter. So I think she was like, oh, yeah, and he was handsome. So she was like, okay, I'll make an exception for you. Um, So that's pretty cool. And you'll find out a little bit later that probably he was quite a good match for her as well. Uh, So the next phase of their life, after all this conquering of peaks and things in Europe, was that uh, well, the beginning of World War I happened. And so Constance and her husband, they decided uh, that they would become correspondents in Switzerland for the war. Um, so they wrote, they wrote articles about what was happening in Europe for uh, newspapers in Australia, in America, in Britain, and in New Zealand. And they were really, really... Uh, hardcore into countering the German propaganda. So they, they published journals that were countering that work. And and also, fun fact, didn't say this before, but Constance was fluent in German, French, Spanish, and Italian, as well as English. So she was an excellent writer. And uh, the work they did, as well as uh, doing all of that war correspondence work, a lot of Constance's writing you can find if you search in papers past because she was still writing a lot of columns for New Zealand newspapers. Uh, And I love Te Ara, the online uh, dictionary of New Zealand, because I love history and it gives me lots of great info. But in her biography, it says at the end that she was a really great woman journalist and a really great woman mountaineer. And I'm like, guys, she was just a great mountaineer and a great journalist, clearly. Uh, So I think that was pretty funny. (laughs) We have to laugh about these things. Um, But (laughs) I want to tell you about something really great that that Constance's husband did that has made me just realise that he is worthy worthy of her, which is that, uh, very sadly, Constance actually passed away when she was still quite young in 1922, but her final wish was that her husband would come back to New Zealand and meet her family and friends, which he did the following year after she died. And he scaled a a peak that hadn't yet been named in Westland, and he called it Mount Barnacote in her honour. And he wrote her biography. So I was like, thank you. He's, He's obviously worthy of this great lady's love, but also probably not worthy of, um, of her obituary being his name instead of hers. Um, but the, the thing I want to finish on 
is that Constance Barnico, I think, is a is was ahead of her time and, and super incredible in so many ways. I refer to her around the home as Connie B. Um, but <laughs> she, if she were here, she'd be like, "What? You're a dick!" Like I always like we always like to think of of historical women and like the suffragists and stuff as if they were here in the 2018. They'd be real badass and they'd be like having drinks with us and being really cool. But I often think that they would just look at me and be like, "Who is this person wearing like potentially children's clothing?" <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's still Connie B to me um, and I just want to finish because in so last year I was working at the Nelson Provincial Museum we've got this incredible photographic collection which is where these photos come from and there's one that's like quite famous amongst our staff because it's a pretty cool photo and it's uh, and it's one that is a staged photo of workers uh, in Golden Bay all men who thought it would be fun to stage this like hilarious tableau where one's pretending to get his hair cut or he's getting shot, shaved and two are pretending to have a boxing match. Someone else has like got a gun out and they're doing all these great things. Some of you might have seen it. Does anyone know the photo I'm talking about? Oh, tons of you, cool. Well, um, last year somebody did an article for uh, the spin-off and said that it was the most badass photograph in New Zealand history. And I was like, no. <laughs> Sorry, that's a cool photo, but the most badass photo in New Zealand history is Constance Barnico in her mountaineering clothing. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Jessie Bray Sharpin on Constance Barnicoat. We'll have some of the pictures Jessie referenced in our show notes on deadladiesshow.com. And thanks, Katie, for doing the show notes. <laughs> um, so New Zealand is not something that I knew that much about a bit before I started working on this podcast. But um, this year is the 250th anniversary of Captain Cook's arrival in New Zealand. This is a timely and controversial topic. And in our next talk, we're going to hear references to this history. So I just want to say a few words about it. Um, now, Cook's arrival marked the beginning of the European presence in the country. The Maori had been living for a couple thousand years before that in the place that they call Aotearoa. So I think, much like in my home country, the United States, there are people who view the so-called discovery of the land, in our case by Christopher Columbus, as a heroic historic incident, and those who find that it marked the beginning of a tragic devastation of the indigenous culture and rampant colonialization. Of course, through the state of Hawaii, we have our own connection to Captain Cook as well. Uh, in fact, he died there. So learn along with me in this talk. Uh, Katie, what did you learn about New Zealand? I learned coming from the UK, I learned that exact same colonial perspective as you did. We learned about James Cook as, you know, the great discoverer, the great uh, seaman. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to find out um, other perspectives. Well, let's now go to our presenter, Marae Raku Raku, a Tuhoi Nati Kahungunu playwright, poet, broadcaster, book reviewer, and theater critic. She'll be telling us about Dr. Irihapiti Ramston, a Maori nurse, writer, educator, and anthropologist who campaigned for the healthcare needs and cultural recognition of indigenous peoples. Maraya starts by introducing herself in Te Rero Mari, her genealogy, her mountain, her river, her hapu, her tribe. Uh, 
namahiana kia koita katoa a uh, ko mona po hatu te maunga ko taranga te awa ko te waimana kaku te kainga tuturu a uh, ko tuhoi te iwi i te taha o tōku mama ko Ngāti Kahununu ki te wairoa tiwi. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. A little bit nervous, okay. Yo, cook. By Mariah Rakraku. Yo, cook. If I met you now, I would bitch slap your scurvy ridden ass back to England. <laughs> Boz the French. Took off the American ears. Go on a bender with the Dutch. Water cannon the whalers. Club the sailors. <laughs> flagellate and then perhaps crucify the missionaries. <laughs> get the nails, get the nails, get all the nails. <laughs> if that didn't work, I'd commit a bit of arson. Maybe some infanticide to get your attention. Definitely rape. I'd lace the blankets with arsenic, though that seems a little OTT. <laughs> murder. Well, is it murder when there's no other option for civilising you savages? I'd still sign that treaty. I'd just time transport myself to the future and buy up large all the penicillin. Dose everyone. Everyone. Well, everyone but you. I wrote and performed that for the first time at the 2013 Fringe Festival as part of Dusky Maiden's Noble Savages. A collective of Māori and Pacific poets speaking to experiences of being Māori, Pacific, Indigenous, minority cultures, 21st century, past, present, future, now, Aotearoa. In writing Yo Cook, I was reaching back 20 years to experiences, events, people, and in this case, a phrase shaping who I was becoming. The phrase, cook, nails. The person in this instance, though there have been many that have shaped me, but the person in this instance who I'm going to talk about tonight is Dr. Eddie Harpiti Medinia Ramsden. Okay, has anyone heard of her? Oh yeah! You probably all know her too, right? Or you're familiar with her work. So a quick Google facts. And you guys can pitch in too. Eddie Harpiti Medinia Ramson was born in 1947. She died in 2004. Ko Naitahu Nati Ko Eric Ramson me Medinia Manawatsu de Matua. She was awarded her doctorate from Vic Uni in 2002, a doctorate which formed the basis of her main body of work and for which she is known today. Cultural safety in the New Zealand nursing curriculum. If you continue Googling, you'll find papers that she's written. So those are the facts. But what I want to talk about is how her work has influenced and stretched into my life 
from writing poetry to supporting Māori and Pacific writers to implementing cultural and safety papers within the chiropractic school curriculum. So it's the mid-90s. I'm in my 20s. I'm in my second real job post-university in health promotion in the health promotion unit at East Bay Health Whakapane. I'm the adolescent health coordinator. That involves focusing on health promotion activities relevant to adolescence, which was primarily just a lot of sex education, which is how I find myself at an HIV AIDS conference at Manurewa Marae in Auckland. We've just finished the pōhere, having a cup of tea, I'm poring over the programme. The keynote started and I'm busy trying to figure out how I can skive off sometime during the hui so I can catch up with one of my cousins. But as I'm doing this, I'm becoming increasingly distracted from what I'm reading by what I'm hearing. My reaction's immediate. I start laughing. Whoever this person is, dynamic, intelligent, hilarious, in speaking to what I'm experiencing in my life, it's like the relearning of the history that I've been going through at that time. My deepening understanding of colonialism is being articulated fiercely, truthfully, and matter-of-factly. I move closer to the stage. On the stage, I see a Māori woman, maybe in her 40s, attractive. She's got Charlie's Angel circa Farah Fawcett here. <laughs> She's wearing this wicked-as pantsuit, though at the time, I just thought it was a jacket and some trousers. <laughs> and she also has what I'll come to recognise, a Native American design scarf around her neck. And she tells the story about how when Tangata Whenua first encountered James Cook, how we marvelled at nails. Our tupuna had lashed, tied, slated woods together and couldn't understand, couldn't quite believe, marvelled at how these little, little, little bitty things, well, that would have been bigger, I guess, could hold together ships and buildings. So as Captain James Cook is making landfall in different parts of Aotearoa, it's getting around. Nails. And as trading is becoming the norm, it's getting around. To the point that after the usual preliminaries, tangata whenua are just looking at Cook and saying, Cook, nails. Now, when I heard Eddie Harpiti say this, I burst out laughing, attracting the usual conservative Māori side-eye, <laughs> because in the telling of that story, my freshly going through a decolonisation ears heard a confidence, an arrogance, and a self-knowing that my tupuna had 
and which their descendants have had to learn because of the insidious, hateful experience of colonisation. And it's that self-knowing that I believe is the truest legacy of Dr. Eddie Harpity Ramsden. It's always better to understand... Oh, shit, I'm about to forget it. It's always better to understand... Ah, oh, fuck me. It's a quote by Ani Mikaire. It's always better to understand the nature of your oppression than to be blindly angry at it. Eddie Harpity was coming of age post-Second World War and Māori urbanisation. She moved into the nursing profession, as was the case for many wahine Māori. We either became nurses, help, or um, the variety of other domestic employment. And as she was moving into the nursing profession, and as she did, as any Māori will tell you, when you are the only one in your profession, office, staff room, other Māori immediately go to you. Because you become the expert. Well, you are the expert in what they're going through, but you also become the intermediary between them and the other professionals. And this is how she recognised and encountered the need for cultural safety practices to not only prevent patient from becoming teacher, but to assist the health professional to read and understand the needs of the patient. When I learned this about Eddie Harpesi, at the time I was lecturing at the chiropractic school in Auckland, and I ended up developing similar cultural standards of health practice within the school. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. She also worked with Waitangi Associates. Now, most of you are too young to know about the Considines, Pākehā Treaty Educators. Anybody know the Considines? Oh, yay! <laughs> she worked with them. And they went through the treaty because she understood that it's a relationship between Māori and Pākehā that we all come at things with our own cultural lens and that how that determines how we behave and interact with each other. And she understood that. She understood that and she worked with it and then she developed things practically for people to come to themselves. Again, it's that thing about self-knowing. That's the end of my quarter, or however. <laughs> One of the other things that Eddie Harpiti did is she was part of a collective of three other wahine Māori who published The Bone People, which, as you know, is the first New Zealand book to have won the Booker Prize. The book had been rejected numerous times, and she was one of the first of those wahine to die. She died when she was 57, which in Māori years is four. She was incredibly young, and what I wanted to... Her legacy of knowing and her self-knowing isn't just for Māori, it's for Pākehā too. And it's for our relationship with each other. And in some ways, I think the work that she's done has, has carried on. But in other ways, when I hear the same old tired argument about whether te reo Māori should be compulsory in schools, 
because being bilingual sucks, said no one ever. <laughs> you know, we've moved, we have moved, but then we, we move back again, and then we move forward, and then we move back again. But because of her influence, and there's, like I said before, there's been many who have influenced me, she had such hope that theory could become practical, that practical was theory, and that you could own who you are and all the shit that may entail, that you can own being Pākehā, you can own being Māori, and that we are in relationship always with each other. So, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Maraia Raku Raku on Irihapiti Ramsden. Tēnā koe, Maraia. You can find photos of everyone featured in this episode on our website, deadladyshow.com. Again, the talks in this episode of the podcast come from an edition of The Dead Lady Show presented as part of Lit Crawl Wellington. That event was produced by Andrew Laking and Claire Maybe of Pirate and Queen. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on SoundCloud along with all episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Dead Lady Show, or drop us a line to info at deadladyshow.com. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, Google Play Music, and everywhere you like to listen. Thanks to Katie and all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. Thank you, Susan. <laughs> Yay.